1: Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. I'm super pumped about this, though. I feel like we're like really knocking it out of the park here. Really? A little bit, yeah. Okay. I think I'm just like really excited about um, the day. I think my day cool's kicked in. Oh, okay. It's got a little bit of caffeine in it, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm feeling the opposite. I thought I totally ruined part one. Well, you didn't help anything, but I think that I carried us, if that, if we're being honest, so. Okay, well, as long as you <laughs> carried it enough, then I guess we're fine. I guess I should just go ahead and tell the people that I did not get any sleep for two nights now because I was stupid and got a brand new puppy. I mean, I love him, but he's very little. And also my kids decided not to sleep last night at all. So anyway, it's just been, I'm very tired and it's like, my brain is not working. So I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully you guys can forgive it. I guess I'm just, since we're recording these in direct succession, Mm -hmm. can't make any promises for this episode either. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I I understand. (gasps) Okay. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think that we should do a little recap. Okay, that's a great idea. Yeah, if it's been the full week for you, you, we need just a refresher. If not, please just completely ignore this part. It won't be long, but... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So remember, the Wonderland Gang is the low-level local gang that mostly dealt drugs out of their loyal Canyon Hills home on Wonderland Avenue. Mr. and Mrs. Wonderland, Bill mm-hmm. Wonderland, and they were also heavy drug users and would often break into or break the drug dealer's cardinal rule of don't get high on your own supply. The gang's other way to make money was to break into people's homes, impersonating police, and take anything that they could sell for cash. They had one customer slash friend in the form of porn star John Holmes. Torella, what was his name when he was doing his porns? <laughs> this is rude of you to ask <laughs> me this. Uh, it was Johnny Wad. Yep. So throughout the 70s, old Johnny Wadd was on top of the world and he was making more money than he ever thought possible. But after a few years in the adult film industry, Holmes developed a huge drug habit slash dependency. This led him to become friends with the Wonderland gang. And he was also friends with another much larger drug dealer in the area, Eddie Nash, or as Eddie Nash liked to call himself, mm-hmm. the Nash. The Nash. The Nash. Eddie Nash was the owner of several bars, clubs, restaurants at the time. The Nash also ran a drug business and like the Wonderland gang, he was heavy, heavily addicted to drugs and was using his own supply. So Nash treated Holmes like a brother and would often front him drugs, which he knew Holmes would never be able to pay back. Holmes was in debt to the Wonderland gang and in order to pay off his debt, he came up with this genius plan to rob his friend, Eddie Nash. So the gang put their plan into action. And this is on June 29th, 1981. When it's over, it's estimated that they made off with around $1.3 million in cash, drugs, jewelry, antique guns, you name it. Mm -hmm. So what I love about this plan is John Holmes is like, I can never, ever, ever pay you back. I don't have any money. I don't have anything. I'm Not only can I not pay you back, I'm not going to. No, never going to do that. Let's just steal the stuff from somebody else. Yes. Well, I mean, my God, what is he supposed to do? His hands are tied. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, he's like, I need the drugs, clearly. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop doing the drugs. No. I'm not going to be able to pay for these drugs. So I've got, what, what else am I supposed to do? I'm going to have to steal it from someone else. hmm Yeah. And that will square our debt as well. I mean, because it's it's just like, you know, if you borrow a coat from somebody or whatever, and then you give that coat to somebody else, you're like, oh, I don't need this anymore. You can have it. It's like, that's not yours to give. Like 100%. And also Eddie Nash, the people that we're talking about, they're not the most savory characters all the way around. Eddie Nash, though, I feel like was kind of, he was better than the fucking Wonderland gang but he trusted John Holmes as a friend. Mm-hmm. He saw him as a brother and this yeah. fucking guy really fucked him over big fucking time. I mean, he really did. And like the Nash is sitting here like, look, man, look, the Nash knows you can't pay him back. Yeah. <laughs> the Nash knows you're just going to do all the drugs and you don't have any intentions of ever, ever, ever paying me back. But you know what? That's fine, man, because the Nash loves you. <laughs> yeah, it's like a daddy loves you. Daddy loves you, but the Nash. But the the Nash loves you. Yeah. And he saw him as a brother and he was like, you know what? The Nash and Johnny Wad stay together.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And look what he done did to him. Look what you made me do. Yeah. Bitch, better have my money. (laughs) Exactly. So after the robbery, the gang gets back to the house on Wonderland Avenue and begins to sort through all of their newly found possessions. That's sweet that he said it like that. Newly found possessions, sweet. Yeah, newly, yeah. Stolen. Stolen. So again, cash, drugs, jewelry, all the stuff. And the antique guns that Lanius had sold to Nash previously. So he just stole his own guns back, basically. Yes. Well, and that's the thing. No, but he didn't, okay, Nash didn't steal the guns from Lanius. Lanius sold them. um, Yeah. (laughs) And then Lanius wanted them back, so he went and stole them. That have just been paid for. Mm Mm-hmm. Fair and square. I mean, come on. The Nash keeps receipts. Oh, you better believe the Nash keeps a receipt. <laughs> oh, yeah. While they were going through everything they had taken, the gang decided they would short Holmes on his cut. Their thought was that since they'd given John the 400 to go to Nash with in the first place, and then he got to stay there and do all kinds of drugs while they waited on him, that he deserved less of a cut because he was like parting it up the whole time. Well, and the whole point of him... Telling them about this is to pay off a debt that he owed anyway. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They also factored in, like you said, what he owed them originally and said that the fact that he wasn't there for the actual break in meant he should get less. Obviously, John is pissed about this, <laughs> but you know, what's he going to do? Normally, he'd probably go to Nash and ask for help, but he can't go to the Nash because the Nash is going to know that he fucking did him dirty. Yep. And he can't go to the cops. So, oh God, no yeah hey we stole from some guys and they won't give me my part he started it exactly yeah so john essentially just has to like suck it up and move on so john has some cash and some of the jewelry that was taken from the nash Mm -hmm. what's his next step Mm -hmm. there are two different versions that we found of what john did next the first version is that John knows that the Nash will figure out that he was involved. So the day after the robbery, he goes to Nash's home just to pop in and say hi. Essentially, John is trying to make it seem like he had no idea what like that he had no idea what had happened. And he was just coming by like he normally would, you know, like no change in his uh routine, basically. Right. And he's like, oh my, what happened here? Yeah. I get you broken into, you say. Oh my goodness. <laughs> The Nash is not pleased. (laughs) Exactly. And the Nash was not born yesterday. He's like, Mm -mm. "Mm, this seems weird. You're doing something weird here. The second version of the days following the Nash robbery, as told by a witness, Scott Thorson, he writes in his 1988 memoir, Behind the Candelabra, My Life with Liberace. It's actually pronounced Liberace. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I wasn't expecting Liberace to come in here. Come into mm, I <laughs> I am kind of excited because we don't talk about Liberace enough, if we're no, being honest. So no, we don't, yeah. But okay, so Scott Thorson was a teenager when he met Liberace, and once he was eighteen, he'd moved in with them, and they had a relationship. And he says that Liberace made him get plastic surgery, trying to make Scott look more like himself. Wait, look more like Liberace. Mm -hmm. Just trying to keep up here. Um, (laughs) I guess, I don't know. Have I been dating wrong? Is that what you're supposed to do? The last thing that I want is to have to look at me in romantic situations. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to see what me is doing. I don't want to (laughs) see me. I want to see somebody else. Yeah, not me. Right. Right. So that's interesting. I don't know what to do with that information. I don't either. I feel very upset about it. But anyway, Scott Thorson says in this book, memoir, right, that he was actually at the Nash's home when John Holmes was brought there. And he said that he saw Nash order Gregory Diles to go out and find John. Nash suspected that John had something to do with the robbery from the start. There were very few people who knew about the safe that Nash kept hidden away in his room, but John Holmes was one of them. John, you freaking idiot. Like <laughs> why are you going to go and give somebody information that like you know full well he only has given to like 3 people or whatever. Well, he doesn't I mean, I think that it's very obvious that John Holmes does very little thinking with his brain. He did a, little, a lot of thinking with his peen for a while, but now I don't know what he's thinking with. Mm. Brain's out of there though. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, that also just goes to show like how much of a betrayal this is to the Nash because the Nash loved John. Like, if he only gave that information to people that he thoroughly trusted, and remember, he's paranoid. Oh, yeah, been been being paranoid. Done been paranoid. So Mm -hmm. for him to give that information to John is like a real testament to the fact that he legit did view him as a brother. Like he loved him. Mm -hmm. And then John betrayed that trust because John doesn't love anybody but his own peen.
0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Which is kind of sad now because it's rendered basically useless. It's just like a, I don't know, it's like a paperweight. It's there. It doesn't really get much use. i mm. have to dust it every once in a while, but it's there. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, and what do we know about the Nash is that he didn't put up with this kind of thing. So brother or not. Yeah, when he's teamed up with Dials, like get out of here. Exactly. Like bad stuff is going to happen. Mayhem ensues. And just because you used to be a brother to him does not mean you're still a brother to him anymore. Mm -mm. So Gregory Diles went out to the streets and started searching for John. And remember... Gregory Dials will shoot at you. He will empty his gun at you across six lanes of full traffic. He doesn't care. <laughs> no, you are not safe. You can't hide behind shit. Mm-mm, mm-mm, because he'll just blow that up. Like, he doesn't care. If he has to kill 19 people to get one shot at you, so be it. Yeah, like, who Those cares? Those people were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Exactly, it's their own fault. Eventually, he found John just walking around town. Uh, oh, hi, John. <laughs> hey, I've actually been looking for you. This is perfect. (laughs) Some accounts say that when Dials found him, John was actually wearing some of the jewelry that they had stolen from Nash. What an idiot. Yeah, exactly. You cannot wear that. I found this. (laughs) I found it. It fell out of your hair that way. Exactly. You cannot do that. The Nash knows what jewelry is missing. Well, yeah. And it's literally probably a locket with a clipping of the Nash's hair inside of it. Exactly. Like, like, he's going to know. Yeah. He's like, I would recognize that lock of the Nash's hair <laughs> a mile away. Exactly. Try and me. unless he gives it to you like Wayne Newton did on Vegas vacation, <laughs> you stole it. Exactly. I mean, just what an idiot. Mm-hmm. So Dials grabs him and escorts him back to Nash's home. And once Dials and John arrived at the Nash's house, Scott Thorson claims that he saw Nash order Dials to take John to another room and beat him. Gregory Dials took John to another room. He goes to work. He beats John until Eddie Nash came in to question him. I wonder if he beat him with his own dick. Oh, it's long enough. It is. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. very hard, though. No, no. Too soon? Okay. It's like beating somebody with a, with a, Soggy pool noodle. (laughs) (laughs) So Nash knows that John was involved. Again, if he wasn't sure about like, okay, well, I gave the, I know that I told like five people about the safe and he's one of them. Wearing the jewelry that was stolen, dead giveaway, dude. (sighs) Yeah, I don't think that you can talk your way out of that one after you've been caught with the jewelry on. on. Yeah, so he's like, look, I know you're involved, and I know that you know who else is involved, so you need to just give me the names. And this was the early 80s, so cell phones were as big as a Volkswagen Beetle. (laughs) So John carried around a little black address book with him. He did not have a cell phone with him, of course. No, with the contacts list and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So Nash took this address book and started to flip through it while holding a gun on John. At this point, Nash didn't mince words. He told John simply and straightforward, you tell me who did this or I will hunt down every one of your friends and family in this book and brutally murder them. Jeez. And I believe he would have done it. Yeah, I do too. Based on the movie, it looked like Nash had a lot of time on his hands. He did a lot of like boating, yachting, uh-huh. uh partying. So, he's got the time. Yeah, and he's got his, you know, minions to go out and do yeah, whatever his resources. He wants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He can get shit done. Exactly. So, John believes him too, and he's like, "Okay, fine." It was Ron Laoneus and the Wonderland Gang. And Mark makes a good point that he says, I do feel like he would have eventually like given them up without the threat to his family just because they shorted him his cut. So he, I mean, he he's a piece of shit. Like mm-hmm. he literally does not care about anybody but himself. And to save himself, he would totally give everybody else up. He doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, care. he'd roll over on anybody. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just the way it goes. Okay. So Tori, tell us a little bit about the actual, basically the Nash's vengeance. Yes. So what happened that night is unclear as far as like what order everyone was killed in. And no one that was thought to have been there ever came out and said what actually happened that night. But from different articles, this is the most common timeline that Mark could come up with. And I appreciate all of the hard work put into trying to yes. figure this out. So in the early morning hours of July 1st, 1981, Eddie Nash put his plan for vengeance into action. He told Gregory Dials to take John Holmes to the gang's house on Wonderland Avenue and make things right. Gregory Dial took John and a few other people to Wonderland and John was supposed to get them inside. As soon as they were in the home, the first person they came across is Barbara Richardson and she's sleeping on a couch. She is beaten to death as she slept. And she had nothing to do with anything. No, nothing to do with it. She's just there sleeping. Yeah. Next, they found a bedroom where Joy Miller was asleep in the bed with, and Billy Deverell must have heard something and he would gotten up. Joy would be beaten with pipes and hammers until she was dead. Billy was also beaten with pipes and hammers. His body fell to the ground and he slumped over, leaning against a TV stand at the foot of the bed. Pipes littered the floor, and a bloody hammer would be found tangled up in the sheets of the bed. According to Holmes, he did not take part in this. He was just brought there to witness the carnage. Next, they moved to the bedroom where Ron and Susan Lanius were sleeping. They attacked both with the pipes. Susan Lanius was beaten almost to death. She would be the only person in the home that night to survive. She was left with severe head injuries and amnesia. She also lost a finger in the attack. She was found on the floor next to the bed. Ron Lanius was hit in the head with the pipe while he was sleeping. After Dials hit him a few times, it said that he then pulled a gun on John Holmes and gave him the pipe. He told John to attack Lanius. John attacked Ron Lanius, caving in his skull with a metal pipe, hitting him over and over until his head was essentially mush, leaving him almost unrecognizable.
0: Mm.
1: When all was said and done, Billy Deverell, Joy Miller, Barbara Richardson, and Ron Lanius would all be dead. Brutally beaten to death, all their skulls caved in from the damage done by metal pipes and hammers. Susan Lanius survived her vicious attack with life-altering injuries. Two members of the Wonderland gang were absent that night. Tracy McCourt was in his own home that night, although he was the getaway driver that night of the Eddie Nash burglary. He would not face Nash or his goons for his part. McCourt would eventually move away from LA to Colorado. David Lind. Was also not in the house that night. He was off in the San Fernando Valley in a hotel with a prostitute. Ooh, sex worker. Mm-hmm. They were on a drug bender, which ended up saving Hoggins' life and keeping him safe from the attack that night. Neighbors around the Wonderland Avenue house would report that they heard screams coming from the house during the night. They never called the police because it was just par for the course when it came to the Wonderland gang. They always had parties that lasted all night and people were always screaming and yelling. Could you imagine being the neighbor? (laughs) Exactly. It's like, that's no, again, poor um, Joni Mitchell just trying to like write her music. Yeah. And just sing her little heart out. Some of the neighbors said that they thought it was part of a primal scream therapy that was popular at the time. Jesus. (sighs) I'm so glad that we, well, I mean, God, Wild Wild Country, they did it Uh there. uh But I'm so glad that we didn't live through that because Can you imagine like just dozing off and then hearing just these guttural, (sighs) yes, just screaming. Just bushes flying. Oh, geez. Yep. Just you have to dodge the bush. Yeah. One neighbor claims to have heard a woman scream, oh, God, please don't kill me, but brushed it off and went back to sleep. Hmm. That sounds about normal. I mean, if we had a nickel for every time we heard that, you know what Mm. I mean? It's just like, just move on. matter, You don't want to get in anybody's business, that's for damn sure. I'd rather live with the fact that someone was murdered than to get inside of all their business, so. Well, and that's the right thing to do. Apparently. Mm -hmm. Before the police were called about the murders, there were other visitors to the Wonderland home. At one point, someone had come up and rang the buzzer and tried to buy drugs, but no one answered, so they left. Later in the day, more people came to get drugs and noticed that the door was open. They went into the home and came upon the crime scene. They then proceeded to try to go through the home and see if they could find any money or drugs. <laughs> Sweet. Very nice. I know. Um, it's like, I mean, you know, it's just the the addiction takes over. It's it's right. sad. I don't, I don't mean to laugh and it's just like, you know, their first thought is not, I mean, and what are they going to do? They're going to call 911 and be like, so, hey, I was, I was to there to buy drugs. Buy drugs. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, It's like, well, while I'm here. Yeah. I mean, don't want to miss an opportunity, right? Yeah. So when they were in the bedroom, Susan Lanius began to stir and made noise and the men ran out and down the road. When the paramedics arrived, Susan had been there for over 12 hours clinging to life. My gosh. Tougher than a $2 steak. On their way out, they yelled to some furniture movers next door that there were dead bodies in the home and that they should call the police. The movers went to the house to investigate and were horrified at what they discovered. They immediately called the police and shortly after, Wonderland Avenue was crawling with police and news reporters. Okay, I get that if you are addicted to drugs and you walk into this house and it seems like everybody is dead... I don't think it's right, but I understand that like, okay, they're like, you know, the addiction is going to take over and they're like, let me see what I can find. She is still alive. Mm -hmm. The decision to not call, that's life or death for her. Well, yeah, I mean, who knows? Because if you're in that kind of a state, it could literally be seconds. You know what I mean? Like she's already been there for 12 hours. So yeah, it's not one of those like, oh, well, what's another minute? Like that could mean her life or death. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, do the right thing. Like they still go on about their business and still look through the house. Like, come on! And yeah, then the, as they're up. leaving, they're like, "Well, we've wrapped up here, done all we can do. Now, somebody call the police." Like, yeah, that's shitty. You know who we need to call is Andy Cordan because it's messed up. It's messed up. It, it is. Yep, you're right. So this case would fall into the laps of detectives Tom Lange and Robert Souza. Tom Lange had been. Uh, and I'm saying Lange. I don't know if that's right. Lang. Yeah, I feel like it's Lang. Well, damn it. I was like t- going for something that was kind of like French. Yeah. My phone thinks that I'm French because of <laughs> when we did Who Killed Little Gregory. Oh. It still assumes that I'm French. So everything that I type, it autocorrects to a French word. And I guess I just proved it right. That's really funny. hmm That was so long ago that we did that.
0: And yeah, no, phone's my phone's like,
1: like, got it. Definitely still French. yes. Never stopped being French, clearly, yes. Robert Souza, Tom Lang had been out at his ex-partner's ranch riding horses when he got the call. He then called his partner, Souza, who immediately began to make his way to the crime scene as well. The media immediately called it the four on the floor murders because of the police radio call that went out, four down at Laurel Canyon. Okay, like don't they refer to anything like that? So it's like two down. Three, yeah. day, you know, whatever. So, like, but why four is this on the, floor, four on the floor immediately? Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, one of them, Susan, was found on the floor. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, you know, somebody like the media, whoever it was that like coined that, was like, "If this is going to spread like wildfire," I almost said wildflower. I know, it, <laughs> but they do spread too. If this yeah. is going to spread like wildfire, I have. You almost did it again. <laughs> I did. I almost did it again. <laughs> It's got to be something like snappy, you know, catchy. Like, ooh, what are we going to call it? What are we going to call it? Like, totally. Yeah. I mean, four on the floor. But both Lang or Lange, however you want to, and Sousa knew that the media would be all over this case because just over a decade before the Tate-LaBianca murders had caused a frenzy. I almost said friendly. (laughs) Frenzy. (laughs) Tom Lang arrived on the scene before Sousa. So he got someone to follow him through the crime scene filming while he narrated what he saw and went over the crime scene. The footage is available to watch online, but it is very graphic. Looking back, they would both say that the Wonderland crime scene was the most brutal, gruesome, bloody crime scene that LA has ever seen. So as they're going over the crime scene, though, police do find something of note in the bedroom where Ron and Susan were. On the headboard of the bed that Ron Lanius was beaten in was a palm print. Detectives quickly sent that out to try to figure out who it belonged to. While they were waiting for that to come back, the next logical step was to try to find other members of the Wonderland gang who were unaccounted for as they were the most likely suspect. Detectives found David Lind and brought him in for questioning. Lind told them that he was not in the house that night, but that he was in a motel in the San Fernando Valley making a drug deal. And he was also doing drugs with a sex worker. Obviously, this piqued the detective's interest, so they pressed and asked more questions because they thought that he knew more than he was letting on. After a while, Lynn Hagen gave in and told them about the burglary the gang had performed only 48 hours before the murders took place. He also told them that John Holmes was an accomplice in the robbery. So now police have someone they can take a closer look at. They have John Holmes, who has been identified as an accomplice to the robbery, and they have drug crime boss Eddie the Nash, Nash, who would be looking for revenge. So the police bring in John for questioning pretty quickly following their interrogation of David Lind Hogan. At this point, they don't know that the palm print belongs to him, but they're confident that he was there just based on what Lind Hogan told them. They questioned him for a while, but ultimately they have to let him go because they didn't have any real evidence against him. John freaks out after he gets let go and he and Don Schiller immediately leave town and begin a life on the run. For five months, they elude the police and end up in Florida. Once there, they stayed at a little motel and tried to keep everything just like a super duper low key. Why didn't John go on the run after... Like, you know what I mean? Like, he picked the wrong time to go on the run, I think. Yeah. Because he should have done it before everybody, like, after the, the robbery. Right, yeah. Like, yeah, get out of there because everybody already knows that you... Had something to do with it. Yeah, that you had something to do with it. He's just an idiot. He just doesn't do anything when he's supposed to do anything. I just can't stand he's him. He's just... Yeah, he's so stupid. He's the worst. Okay, so they're trying to, like live this like low-key life. He had gotten a job doing something. She was working at the motel, I think, doing cleaning. But his dumb ass can't stay low-key very long. He attacks her in public one night. And bystanders stepped in, and they stopped it. And they asked if she wanted to leave, and she said yes. So she turned John into the FBI, and then he was arrested. Wow. Sucks to suck, John. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't attack your girlfriend. No. And it was not the first time he'd done it. He did that kind of thing to her all the time. Mm -hmm. And he had pimped her out to Eddie Nash before, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, just awful stuff, you know? And she finally was like, I'm done with this. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, he'd been manipulating her, gaslighting her, all these things to try to stay. And she just finally was like, he's never going to change. No, and he is never going to change. People like that don't ever change. Exactly. In December of 1981, the police arrested John Holmes for the murders of the four on the floor. He was charged with four counts of murder. Holmes claimed that he was there, but that he didn't participate in any of the murders. The police knew John was there that night because the palm print on the headboard belonged to him. He would be extradited from Florida back to California. He refused to cooperate with the police investigation, though. They wanted to make a deal with him and go after Nash. But John was afraid to make any type of deal because rightfully so. seen what Nash can do. Exactly. He was worried about what Nash would do to him. While they were trying to get his help, they set John up in a hotel room with Dawn and his estranged wife, Sharon. John wanted them to all go into witness protection, but Sharon refused. She was just an innocent bystander in all of this. And she's like, I am not going to totally like uproot my life. Because if they go into witness protection, like it's basically just the three of them together for the rest of their lives. You know, they lose connection to everybody else. And she's like, I actually think you're the worst. So I really don't want to like be stuck with you forever. Well, yeah, my God. It's just like this one mistake that I made 12 years ago. And now here we are, you know, like, yeah. Exactly. It's just ridiculous. John's trial in California started in March of 1982. The prosecution argued that the position of the palm print above Ron's body clearly shows that while John was hitting Ron, he placed his hand on the headboard to steady himself. I mean, probably did. Uh huh. John used a court appointed defense team, and they argued that John himself was also a victim in this case. That's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. That reminds me of Gacy being like, you know, I consider myself the 33rd victim or the 34th victim. (sighs) Oh my God. It sends me into a complete Mm -hmm. rage. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like what a fucking dick. Yeah. Their defense was that John was caught between two drug dealers that both used him as a pawn, (laughs) which is like, he used both anyway. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's completely innocent here, right? hmm Yeah. Oh, okay. They said the Wonderland gang bribed him with drugs to help them with Nash, which then caused him to be on Nash's radar since Nash thought he was an accomplice of the Wonderland gang. They also argued that since John was a known associate of the gang, that it wouldn't be out of place for his handprint to be found in, in the house. <laughs> right. In blood? or Is that what we're talking about? And also... Okay, the Wonderland gang did not bribe him with drugs to help them get Nash. No. They, I mean, after a while they did, but didn't John become friends with him just on his very own? Yes. Like, it's just so ridiculous. He was like, well, they maybe be friends with him. Okay, uh-huh. and then you're the one who was like, oh, and also I've got this friend that I'm, we're gonna totally fuck over. It's gonna be the best, what would you call it? The best reward for a robbery ever, right? Yeah. He's the one who decided that. They didn't press him. Where did they get this information? How'd they know about the safe? Exactly. And they, like, yeah, he's the one that brought Nash into the whole thing. Like, Nash wasn't on their radar as a target at that point. No. Because he's huge. Like, and they know that he's got, you know, security and whatever. They're not gonna try and fuck with him. No. But Holmes comes in and says, hey, I'm actually really close with him. He's got tons of money and tons of drugs. We could totally Mm -hmm. get in there. I can leave the back door open for you. Yes, exactly. Come on. Yeah. And he even went and checked the back door again because they all slept so long and he was worried that, you know, the door was going to be locked. So he went back, like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There were plenty of opportunities for him to be like, well, I'm out. Yeah, exactly. And it reminded me of the Jodi Arias case, just with the handprint or whatever. And she's like, I wasn't there. (laughs) I mean, that's really compelling, but I wasn't there. Yeah. Or like, well, I've I've been there. Of course my handprint would be there. Yeah, I I agree with that. In blood? Mm Mm-mm. I mean, we have to look at all the options though, right? A nosebleed? Right. Anybody can... Can get a paper cut and then you have a full on bloody handprint left behind. It's happened to me. Sure, sure. Did we rule out that it's not ketchup? Oh, that's true. Barbecue sauce, uh, spaghetti. Sure. Yeah, they could have had waffle fries. You know, you need a lot of ketchup for that. And then uh, bada bing, bada boom, we accidentally, you know, slipped and there's the handprint. (laughs) Exactly. Man, first it was the hamburglers and now it's waffle fries. Like, I (laughs) can't. Can you tell we're hungry? Yeah. While he was on trial, John was housed in the keep aways section of the LA County Jail. Essentially, this is a section of the jail where celebrity or high profile people are kept. Examples are Suge Knight and Chris Brown were both in cells next to Lonnie Franklin Jr., aka The Grim Sleeper, who by the time this comes out, we will have probably already covered on the Patreon. Sean Penn was in the cell next to Richard Ramirez John Holmes was beside both of the Hillside Stranglers, Angelo Buono and Kenneth Bianchi. Also on Celebrity Road during Holmes' stay were serial killers Patrick Kearney and Vaughn Greenwood. So, with all of that evidence, he definitely got convicted, right? You would think, right? Mm-hmm. right? He was acquitted of all charges on June 26, 1982. The only charge he was convicted on was for contempt of court when he re- Refused to provide evidence to the prosecution for which he spent 110 days in jail. John Holmes' trial was a landmark case because it was the first trial to introduce videotape as evidence since they included the crime scene walkthrough as evidence. The jury felt like John was an unwilling participant in the murders and he was forced to take part. I think that that is true. I'm not going to lie. I do think that that is true. I don't think that he went to the house willingly and said, I'm going to murder some people. However, he was a very integral cog in the machine that he started. Like he's the one who started that thing, like the train going. Mhm. And then he's like, "Well, shit, I didn't know. I mean, I I don't have any part in this." No, you had a big part in this. Right. And he knows the Nash well enough to know that he's going to turn around and kill whoever did this. Like he yeah. knows that he's going to seek out revenge in that way. Of course. So yeah, maybe he didn't want to take part in the murders, but he definitely was essentially sending these people out to slaughter, basically. Well, yeah, exactly. He poked the bear and then he was surprised. Yeah. What he got. Because he was positive that nobody would connect him to it because he's like so smart or whatever. Right. Ugh, Just an idiot. Yep, 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 yep. Days after the murders, the police searched Eddie Nash's home. They found a large stash of cocaine, and Nash was sentenced to eight years in prison. A judge released him after serving only two years. In 1990, Eddie Nash would be charged with planning the murders of the Wonderland gang. He would face trial in state court, and the end result was a hung jury of 11 to 1. An associate of the Nash would later reveal that during his eight-year prison sentence, Nash bribed the judge to release him with $100,000 cash to let him go early. After Nash's first trial for the murders, Nash admitted that he bribed the loan holdout with $50,000 cash. Nash would be retried for the murders, but again was acquitted. Throughout the 1990s, police would go back to Nash over and over trying to pin whatever they could on him, and the media referred to him as the one who got away. Jeez. It's easy to be the one that got away when all you do is go around bribing people with cash. Like, (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, so here's my question. What happened to that judge? Like, I would like to know what happened to the judge. Yeah, exactly. There should be consequences there. Mm Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. He's probably retired and it doesn't matter anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he probably retired as a judge. Yeah, you you know he did. Yeah. It wasn't until 2000 that something finally stuck. So after a four-year joint investigation, Eddie Nash was... Arrested on RICO charges for running a drug trafficking and money laundering operation, conspiring to carry out the Wonderland murders and bribing one of the jurors of his first trial. But bribing a a judge isn't, no, no. Nash was 70 years old at this point and decided to plead out. He pled guilty to the RICO charges and the jury tampering. He also admitted that he ordered his men to go to the Wonderland house to retrieve his stolen property, which could have resulted in injuries. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) He received four and a half years in prison and a $250,000 fine. Eddie Nash died on August 9th, 2014, at the age of 85. Wow. Four and a half years. For the brutal slaying of yeah. four people and one clung yep. to life. I mean. Gregory Diles was charged in 1990 with participating in the murders, but was also found not guilty. He died of liver failure in January of 1997. Jeez. After John Holmes was released from jail in 1982, he tried to make a comeback in the porn industry. Obviously, his name didn't have the same draw as it once did. When he did get a gig, it was for little more than just a brief cameo. In February of 1986, nine to 10 months after testing negative, John tested positive for HIV. He kept the positive result to himself and signed a contract to make two films with Paradise Visuals. They would shoot in Italy, and when they were released, it was revealed that John Hatton told his co-stars about his test before having unprotected sex with them. This obviously caused quite an uproar, but John told the press that he was suffering from colon cancer. Okay. <laughs> like, what does that have to do with anything? What a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. That you know. so dangerous. That you have HIV and are positive. Uh-huh. And you are a porn star. Uh-huh. I mean. Wow. Yeah. In January 1987, John married Laurie Rose in Las Vegas after telling her he had AIDS. During the last few months of his life, he stayed in a VA hospital. One day, the detectives from the Wonderland murders paid him a visit. Their hope was that he would want to make some kind of like deathbed confession. They asked him what happened and tried to get him to talk. He told them that he wasn't feeling great that day, but he would write something for Lori to give to them. They left empty-handed. John died on March 13th, 1988, due to AIDS-related complications. In the weeks following the murders, Sharon claims that John made a confession to her. She claimed that John was at her home getting a hot bath and began crying and calling to her in the bathroom. There's somebody out there who wants to kill me, John told Sharon. Why, she asked. The murders, I was involved, I know who did it. Holmes went on to recount how he let three men into the home that belonged to the Wonderland gang, escorted them in, and stood by as they savagely beat the five people inside the house. I had to stand there and watch what they did, he told her. Sharon asked him how he could do that, saying, you knew these people. And all he said was, they were dirt. Wow. And Sharon revealed this after John died. To this day, the Wonderland murders are officially unsolved, but everyone involved in the investigation strongly believes that it was the work of Nash, Dials, and Holmes. And they were all acquitted. How? No earthly idea. I mean, they all met their demise already because of the timeline, right? Like, Yeah. yeah, these murders took place in 1981. So it's a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. I watched an episode of Mysteries and Scandals on this case, too. Mm. And one of the detectives was like, you know, the irony about John Holmes in this case is that had he gone to prison for this murder, had he not been acquitted, he would have lived a lot longer probably. Yeah, he probably wouldn't have gotten HIV where he got it. Yeah, he wouldn't have been out to get HIV. So because he got out, he actually died a lot sooner mm-hmm. because of that. And I'm like, that's weird. I mean, it's just yeah. like, a you know, another like kind of, Strange layer to it, I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. But that's the story. That is. I would recommend, if you guys are interested in this case, the movie Wonderland is... It's interesting. I enjoyed it. It's set, of course, in 1981, but there are a lot of 70s because I think every decade kind of bleeds into the next at the end. So we've got a lot of like 70s music and the outfits and the hair and all the stuff. You don't see not one Bush in that movie though, which is kind of, well, it's very nice if we're being honest. Um, It's very nice. Yeah. Very nice. If you need to see them, you can of course Google, but once again, you can't unsee it once you've seen it, so. No. Even just a picture of him wearing pants is disturbing. It's obscene. Yeah. Yeah. Well- Well, that's it. Again, thank you to Mark for writing the script and thanks to Jerry Burton for requesting it. Yes. Thank you guys so much for listening too and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye.